You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasse, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, and everyone here at Radio Maria Canada, thank you for taking time out of your day to listen to our show. One day, soon, I hope, our shows will not be taped. I'll be back live in, in the studio, but today is not the day. It has been taped. We would love for you to keep up to date with things that are happening around uh, Radio Maria Canada and on the Health Hub by following us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC on those locations. And our email address is thh at radiomaria.ca. You can subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, all of your favorite podcast platforms. And you can also find podcasts previously aired on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca, and on my website, which is kathybiasse.com. One of the true things that I am thankful for is the continued listenership that we have to our show, the ideas, the involvement of all of you, our um our listening people, because it continues to drive me forward to get wonderful guests on the show. And believe me, this is not just to enlighten you. It also goes a long way to enlightening me. And I am a true fan of our guest today, Dr. Benjamin Bickman. Dr. Bickman has earned or earned his PhD in bioenergetics and was a postdoctoral fellow with the Duke National University of Singapore in metabolic disorders. Currently, his professional focus as a scientist and professor at Brigham Young University is to better understand the role of elevated insulin and nutrient metabolism in regulating obesity, diabetes, and dementia. In addition to his academic pursuits, Dr. Bickman is the author of Why We Get Sick and co-founder of In Health Code, co-founder In Health Code, and that's H-L-T-H Code. I learned so much from talking to Ben, as he likes to be called. It's something, this issue of insulin and insulin resistance needs to be spotlighted, and this is what his work is about Insulin resistance, excess insulin in our system is the driver of many diseases and chronic illnesses. I really hope that you take uh, what he says to heart. He gives us very actionable steps on how to monitor and help to control insulin resistance. It's something that we need to have in our suitcase of health clothing. 
very, very important. It's something I really do hope you stick around. And he's a wonderful speaker and a fellow Canadian. He really brings not only in this interview, but also in his book, he takes, he dummies down for all of us normal people, the science and the research that he has been involved with and really elucidates for us key, key things that we need to take into consideration for living a long, healthy life. Some of the things that we talked about are what insulin resistance is and how we can improve it, what diseases may arise from insulin resistance, and why we need to move away from the glucocentric paradigm of metabolic health. A wonderful show. I can say that because I've recorded it already. He's a wonderful guest. I really do hope you stick around and listen to Dr. Bickman. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Put the heavy on me Woke up and I'm feeling lonely This world got a way of showing me Some days it'll lift you up Some days it'll call you bluff Man, most of my days I ain't got enough And all I know Is you're my only
are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. As mentioned, today's show is being taped, so no opportunity for calling in. Please follow us on our social sites. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC on those locations. Uh, ben, welcome to the show. I am really, really happy to have you. Oh, Kathy, my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. You're a fellow Canadian, which makes this even more special. Yeah. Living in Utah, was it a straight line or was it a roundabout? Well, in, in, it's funny because literally it is a straight line, just sort of down straight one of the freeways from Alberta down the Mountain West to Utah. Um, and it was a pretty direct route. Uh, having grown up in Southern Alberta, I have a profound affection for that part of the world. I really do. Mm -hmm. um, those wide open prairies are just sort of where my heart is uh, often. Uh, now it's in the mountains here. Um, but after high school uh, in, in my little town called Sterling, I went, I served a mission for my church and lived in Russia for two years. And then after that, I started my higher education and I came down actually to Utah. I was raised as a, uh, and had dual citizenship. Um, uh, my, my American mom ensured that we all had U.S. citizenship as well. <clears throat> so it was easy for me literally to go back and forth. Um, but I did all my higher education down here, including a bachelor's degree, master's and PhD. And then um, uh, and then we went overseas, actually, and went to Singapore for my postdoctoral fellowship. And so that starts to complicate the route. Uh, and that was an incredible experience. Uh, really, really enjoyed being there with my little family. And now the family's a little bigger. And it, it brought us all the way back to Utah at the same university at BYU, where I did my undergraduate. And here I'm a, a professor. I teach pathophysiology and endocrinology, so the sick body and the hormones. And there's, of course, wonderful connection between those two topics, and you and I are going to dive into that. Mm -hmm. And then I'm the director of the Diabetes Research Lab here on campus. Why is your focus in this area of insulin, hormonal um, connections to, to disease? Right. It, uh, that was an unexpected development in my career. And even now, I sometimes look back with wonder at how I got on this path. Uh, when I was a master's student, I was, my thesis was looking at the correlation between cardiorespiratory fitness and inflammation in the body. Uh, a bit of a weak little thesis, but, but still it planted a seed of interest in inflammation. And as I was looking for resources, um, as I was preparing my thesis, I stumbled across a paper that had been published a couple years prior. So it was published in the late 90s. And it had detailed how when fat cells hypertrophy or when fat cells expand, they become pro-inflammatory and start actively releasing pro-inflammatory proteins called cytokines. And that was such a revelation to me at the time because one, it was the first evidence I'd ever seen that fat cells were endocrine organs, that they are actively secreting hormones. And I had no idea that they participated in endocrinology. And second, it provided a mechanism that connected obesity to type 2 diabetes. And that was a known convergence. People had long known that these two things went together, weight gain and, and type 2 diabetes. But now there was a mechanistic connection directly linking the fat cells to the, the root of, of type 2 diabetes, which is insulin resistance. And that was through these mediating cytokines. In other words, as the fat cells promote inflammation, 
it was the inflammation that was causing some insulin resistance. And then insulin resistance is the foundation of type 2 diabetes. So that, that was such a, I didn't even know I was going to be interested in that, but that literally put me on the path that I'm still on now, almost you know, uh, 20 years later. Is, is, the, uh, is it recognized, is it fully on recognized now that fat cells are part of the endocrine system or is this still something that's being bantered? Oh, it's so fun you ask that uh, question. So <clears throat> I just uh, started teaching. I just inherited our graduate level endocrinology class at the university here. The old, the former professor um, had left the university. And so that class came to me and I was just giddy about it because I'd always wanted the endocrinology class. I looked at that class with very hungry eyes. And as I was putting together my syllabus and the curriculum that I was going to use, I had on my own syllabus the endocrinology of the adipocyte or adipose tissue, fat tissue. And when I was looking at the textbook that had been used, which is a wonderful textbook, it's very well done. There's not a single chapter on it. And so to your question, there's no, there is no question that fat cells are endocrine cells, but the fact that the primary endocrine textbooks aren't devoting a chapter to it like they do to the adrenal glands or the thyroid gland or the gonads, I think does suggest that it's still uh, playing second fiddle. Well, I guess, you know, uh, following along those lines, I'm sure the textbooks may not be caught up with a microbiome and its endocrine functions mm -hmm. um, as well. Now, um, interest and just I, I just want to put a, a period at the end of this. Fat cells and insulin, that's a hormone that we, you just uh, you, you dropped and we're going to, that's the, the focus. But they're not only related, fat cells are not only responsive to the hormone insulin, other hormones as well, right? Impact fat cells? Oh, yes, for sure. Yes. Yeah. So, I, 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 insulin is the primary one. Um, insulin has a, a very primary role in directing what a fat cell is going to do, really whether it grows or shrinks. But also, insulin affects the hormones that the fat cells are releasing, like the famous one, leptin. Uh, insulin and leptin have a very interesting relationship, and insulin seeks to um, increase leptin release from fat cells. So, it, it sort of stimulates that signaling, one of the, again, the famous hormones. But there are other hormones like uh, adrenaline. Adrenaline has a direct effect on fat cells. Cortisol has a very interesting effect on fat cells, essentially stimulating the breakdown of fat cells in the, in the fat cells on, the, on our limbs, like on the periphery, the arms and the legs or the buttocks and hips, but it ends up um, creating a, a, a fat retaining effect within the fat cells of the, uh, in the core, in the truncal part of the body. So it's kind of this differential effect. Um, and uh, yeah, so there are uh, a thyroid hormone uh, also has a very interesting effect on fat cells, increasing the metabolic rate in fat cells. In fact, we have a project going on now looking at the differential expression of thyroid hormone receptors in the fat tissue between men and women, that there are differences in, in uh, the, the degree to which uh, the, the fat tissue from a woman has thyroid hormone receptors versus that of a man. If nothing else, it just goes farther and farther to elucidating the concept that the body works as a complete system. And uh, over the last 20, 30 years, people like you have been pushing to make this circular as opposed to pointed things and trying to look at them individually. It's, it's brilliant. And it makes so much sense, just even on the level that you're talking at 
us about it. Uh, it just makes so much sense. So on to insulin, because I am quite a student of, of this and of yours. Um, let's go to the very beginning. What is insulin? Where is it produced? And some of the functions. Mm-hmm. Yep. So insulin is a necessary hormone. If we don't have it, we die. And that is that was the early fate of people with type one diabetes, um, which is uh, a disease of a, the the cells of the pancreas that make insulin. Now, insulin is what's called a peptide hormone. So it's a very small kind of protein hormone that is made by the pancreas, and it's prime. Or uh, I was going to say primary, but that's not accurate. It's most famous its most well-known effect is to lower blood glucose. And that's an essential effect. If blood glucose levels are too high for too long, it can be very dangerous. Um, Even acutely, as the person starts to um, urinate out all that glucose and all that water that goes with it, and then their blood volume goes too low, and then their blood pressure is too low, and then they'll go unconscious. So, this it it is a very life-saving hormone, even in that acute sense of controlling blood glucose. But unfortunately, Insulin, while controlling glucose is its most well-known effect, it has now become um, so intimately linked to glucose that people have a hard time realizing that insulin does hundreds of other things that have nothing to do with glucose, but all having to do with energy use and, and the growth and shrinking of a cell. But insulin will have insulin will literally affect every single cell of the body. Now, I don't, nowadays, the kids use that term literally quite liberally, and I'm not. I'm being very careful with it. It literally impacts every single cell of the body, and, and thus, its effects differ based on each individual cell. Some of them are complementary or overlapping, but many of them, and indeed, hundreds of them, hundreds of these effects in response to insulin are very distinct to the distinctive cells of the body. So, insulin has its hand in countless chemical reactions. And, and then um, where, when it goes wrong, and I won't get ahead of the conversation, then bad things start to happen. Okay. And so now, so we can get into this part of the conversation, we have the pancreas creating insulin. A major function that most people know about is, is getting the, shunting the, the blood or the, the glucose out of the, the, the blood. Um, insulin resistance. We need to understand this concept to really dig down into the heart of your work. That's right. Yeah. So insulin resistance is the epidemic that no one's ever heard of. Um, this is the single most common health disorder on the planet. Um, one of the reasons that I was invited to Singapore on the other side of the world on this little tropical island and talk about a culture shock or at least a climate shock for a Canadian who'd lived in Russia, you know, it was, it was a bit of an adjustment, a wonderful one, by the way. Um, but it's because even in Singapore, this this little country that is predominantly Asian and Asian Indian individuals, um, there is an incredible, uh, in fact, a higher rate of type 2 diabetes per capita in Singapore than even in the U.S., which is, of course, even worse than Canada. <clears throat> so this is a problem in, in the Middle East. I've been invited to the Middle East multiple times to give talks, and the most diabetic countries on the planet are in the Middle East more than than any um, countries in North America. So this is a global problem, and it here in the U.S. Uh, potentially affecting up to eighty percent of adults. So very very widespread. But again, most people don't know they have it. So insulin resistance is a disease that has two uh, inseparable problems. It's like two sides of a coin. They, they always are going together. And, and on one side, we have the 
insulin resistance per se, which is that insulin isn't working as well as it used to. So that does lead us to that definition of insulin resistance, where insulin isn't working very well. However, there's even then a little bit of nuance where some of the body's cells aren't responding well to insulin, but some of them are responding perfectly well. That matters in light of the other side of the coin, which is that in an insulin-resistant state, blood insulin levels are higher than they were. That's a condition called hyperinsulinemia or just elevated blood insulin. These two problems, insulin resistance and elevated insulin levels in the blood, always will come together. You will not have one without the other. In fact, you can make a person, a human, insulin resistant just by giving them more insulin. Um, And that's something maybe we can get into in speaking about the origins of insulin resistance. But for now, suffice it to say, insulin resistance is a problem of, of two issues. One, altered insulin signaling. Some cells aren't responding as well to insulin, but again, some cells are responding perfectly. And that's a problem in light of the second issue, which is that blood insulin levels are elevated. So those cells that are responding to insulin as well as they ever have, Now, because there's so much more insulin, they're responding too much to insulin. So insulin ends up, on one hand, we have insulin not able to work well enough at the insulin-resistant cells. Then at the insulin-sensitive cells, we have insulin working, it's working too well because there's too much insulin. So we end up getting this very uh, kind of paradoxical situation, but the sum of all of this really is an increased risk of virtually every chronic disease, whether we are talking about Alzheimer's disease or heart disease or fatty liver disease or, or infertility in men and women, we can almost run through the, every primary tissue of the body and diseases associated with it. And insulin resistance is either directly causing the disease, like it is often in, say, infertility, or it's exacerbating the problem, like it would in, say, breast or prostate cancers. It's not causing it, but it's accelerating it. Is the bottom line inflammation, or is that too simplistic? In, in, as a causal factor? Yeah. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. So I consider there to be three primary causes. Now, to just And again, I always want to be very precise in what I'm saying. So when I say primary cause, I mean that there is the best available evidence to confirm that this is a cause. And I'll mention the causes in just a moment. But essentially, my, my definition of this is that, that it's a primary cause if it can cause insulin resistance in isolated cells in, a, in what's called a cell culture or animals, or rather I should say, and at lab animals like rodents that we use in laboratory settings and in humans. So those are the three primary biomedical models that scientists will use, cells, rodents, humans. And so those are, if we can cause insulin resistance in all three of those, then we have something that's really quite powerful. And those, the three, by my view, the three primary causes of insulin resistance are one, inflammation, which we've talked about, two, stress, and that is via the actions of the stress hormones, adrenaline and cortisol, which I already mentioned, in fact, but those, um, those are elevated in situations of stress like um, anxiety or, or physical pain or infection. 
or even sleep deprivation will increase those stress hormones and those will cause insulin resistance. And then lastly, and this is the one that I think is the most relevant, it's chronically elevated insulin itself. Now, to the astute listener, they're saying, well, wait a minute, um, Ben, you talked about how insulin resistance is elevated insulin. That's part of it. Yeah, it's also part of the cause and, and a consequence. So, it ends up becoming this vicious cycle. But too much insulin will create insulin resistance. And the reason I think that's the most relevant is if I were to tell someone to control their inflammation, they'd look at me and say, well, great. Thanks, Ben. How am I going to do that? You know, easier said than done. If Similarly, if I looked at someone and said, well, you need to control your stress, they'd say, well, thanks, Ben. Now I'm even more stressed because I don't know how to control my stress. So, those are, those are slippery levers, if you will. Not that we can't um, affect them, but it's just a little harder to know, am I affecting my inflammation? Or am I improving it? Am I improving my stress? It's just a little more difficult to get a firm grasp on those, um, even though they're very relevant. But insulin, in contrast, a, someone can start to control their insulin immediately, and it has immediate effects. You know, someone can have an insulin in, in if we're using like Canadian units of you know sixty picomoles, and within within a week through lifestyle changes, they can cut that by half or even more. And, and that I think is, that's why I focus on insulin the most, because I believe it's the most relevant variable uh, it, it reflected in how the average Canadian and American eats, which is they wake up in the morning, they, and insulin has been coming down overnight because they've essentially been fasting while they sleep. And, and so it reaches this kind of nice low point in the morning. And then what do we do? We spike it. We go to Tim Hortons and we get a sugary coffee and a bagel and a donut or something like that. And so we immediately spike our insulin with a starchy, sugary breakfast. And then because breakfasts that spike insulin will make you hungrier, this is a separate human study entirely. Um, but when you spike your insulin at breakfast, you're hungrier sooner. And so come mid-morning, they're getting a little snacky. And what do they do? They go to another starchy, sugary snack. And then the same thing happens at lunch, in the mid-afternoon snack, and dinner, and then an evening snack. And so they're spending every waking moment in a state of elevated insulin. And when there's too much insulin, the cells start to become resistant to that insulin, some of them. And that's reflective of a fundamental biological principle. Too much of something will result in a resistance to that something. It's just the way the cells start to compensate. This is why you know, someone who's just drinking coffee for the first time, boy, that coffee will really work. They will get a stimulatory effect from it. But someone who's been drinking coffee their whole life, well, rather than one little cup of coffee, they need three or four in order to get that same stimulation. It's just because they become resistant to it because of the constant exposure. The same thing happens with insulin. Too much insulin is one of the primary causes, and indeed, I would say the primary among the primary of insulin resistance. Not mentioned in your causation uh, is genetics or our genetics. Is genetics our genetics, uh, which I'm seeing this trend more and more and more moving away from this genetic predisposition where we don't have any ability to affect Mm-hmm. So epigenetics and all of that seems to be coming into play. But for me, what's coming very clear from this, and we're going to, you know, in second half of the show, we're going to dive deeper into this, is that we have a role to play uh, overall in our health and very specifically with our management of insulin. Is that a correct statement or is that a little too simplistic? 
Oh, I, I love it. Um, I, I rail against um, the futility of just sort of ta- shrugging your shoulders and putting your hands in the air saying, oh, well, looks like I can't do anything. There's no question that there's familial predispositions to insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely no question. If someone listening to this has a, a parent who has type 2 diabetes, they, this individual is significantly more likely to struggle with this throughout their life. So, there, there's no question that there's a predisposition that follows familial lines. Now, it's complicated by the environment because you're raised in the same home as that person. And so, the same environmental triggers that might have caused the insulin resistance in parent would certainly contribute to the insulin resistance in the child. But even still, there's evidence, strong evidence to suggest there is a familial pattern here. Now, that is not to say that there's a clear genotype or a clear list of genes that are altered in individuals. That's a very, very complicated area. But even still, even if someone hearing this says, "Ah, yep, I have a parent. In fact, maybe I have two parents and this is something I'm going to struggle with. Even still, there's something glorious in the fight. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, it is, it, we should never just accept the fact that we are, we're doomed. I mean, that's not like me seeing all my beautiful orange hair fall out in my early 20s and realizing <laughs> my hairline was doomed. You know, this is when it comes to insulin resistance, we, uh, we have published papers on this and many, many others have there, regardless of the person's status, insulin resistance is something that can be improved dramatically and, and rapidly. And thus, even if someone may have to fight a little harder, well, there's something beautiful in the fight, and it's certainly better than the alternative. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break uh, here, everybody, and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. You unravel me with a melody. You surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemy till all my fears are gone.
You are listening to The Health Hub, here on Radio Maria Canada. A Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are talking with Dr. Professor Benjamin Bickman. What do you go by, actually, when, when people are addressing you in your, your circle? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, to be frank, I'm so, I'm so casual. I so rail against formality that it's usually Ben. Or, or my, my students that work in my lab, I just say, call me Bickman. Ben gets okay. a little awkward. <laughs> but, okay. but yeah, ben, ben it is. Ben and it of course, is. If you're one of my um, seven older brothers, then it's any derogatory form of the word Benjamin. Yeah, we'll let of. them keep their pet names, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. in your inner circle there. <laughs> yeah. um, I want to get, I, we talked about this when we had our conversation off air beforehand. This is something that uh, I have touched upon a while ago, and I, I think it's important. I want you to maybe elucidate it. We have a lot of people know that there's a connection between insulin and blood sugar. You've now told us there are far more uh, implications for insulin resistance in our health. However, um, one of the areas that people commonly get checked is their blood sugar level. And the fact that we're not checking fasting insulin level may be a big slip in our regular health routine. Um, Is this because you know, blood sugar level is so impacted by insulin. So you can have a really great blood sugar level, yet still be having high circulations of insulin causing inflammation that you have no idea about. Yes, absolutely. Yep. So I, I believe one of the reasons insulin resistance is so largely undetected or undiagnosed is, is just as you say, we're looking at the wrong variable. We have a very glucose-centric paradigm of metabolic health, which is why we measure glucose all the time. Uh, but the, that is a problem because insulin is the, is the key variable here. Uh, insulin is what's um, the early, the, the canary in the coal mine. That is giving us the warning of poor metabolic health years, even decades before glucose is. And just so case in point, um, we can imagine someone who's progressing through life. They, they're metabolically healthy. They're insulin sensitive and they're, they're getting to, you know, into their thirties and their forties, no, well, even earlier nowadays. And maybe they have hypertension. They're having, uh, inf- they have infertility, whether it's polycystic ovary syndrome in the woman or erectile dysfunction in the man. The, every one of these are actual symptoms of insulin resistance. They're manifestations of insulin resistance. And yet, the physician and the patient have no idea of that. And so they're looking at these as two distinct problems, you know, whatever it may be. All of these are unrelated. <clears throat> and, and there's no suspicion that there's anything wrong metabolically because the glucose levels are normal every year they're coming in for their checkup. However, if we were to shift the paradigm and look at insulin instead, and remember in insulin resistance, the body's working harder and, and that includes regulating glucose, but it is able to do it as insulin levels are getting higher and higher. It's increasing the insulin to try to make up for the resistance. And so we could imagine the situation where glucose is staying, in fact, it, we don't even have to imagine it. It is the reality of most people. Glucose is staying normal every year, but it's taking more and more and more insulin to keep it normal. And this is why and by the time the body is so resistant to insulin that the glucose starts to change, well, that might be 10 or 20 years after the fact that the, ins- after the insulin had started changing. And so, 
we end up catching the problem 10 or 20 years later than we could. And so to flip that back to the beginning, if we're looking at the insulin, we can see the insulin levels starting to creep up year over year over year, decades before the glucose ever changes. And, and that is reflective of the, the truth of the problem. Th these are insulin problems. They're not glucose problems. The elevated glucose itself is a manifestation of the core problem, hmm. namely the insulin resistance. So our, our obsession on glucose, because it's very convenient to measure, and it is, it's much easier to measure, measure glucose in, in a strictly scientific sense than it is to measure insulin. Um, you know, with glucose, you can prick a finger and get your glucose level from a drop of blood. You can't do that with any hormone, let alone insulin. Insulin requires you to actually draw a blood sample and take it to the lab, and then you get your results later. If you can even get it measured, if even the physician will cooperate to get it measured for you, um, and that's all a little complicated. But even still, if we can convince our physician, our clinic, to measure their, our insulin levels, we have a much more sensitive detector with regards to our metabolic health. We can detect problems much, much sooner than if we continue to doggedly look at the glucose levels, which itself, again, is just a manifestation of the problem, not the problem itself. Is, is there a reason that this isn't in a regular um, blood draw test, a CBC? Yeah, yeah, um, th there is. Uh, in, well, there used to be. Um, I, I think part of the problem nowadays is that people still just don't appreciate it. Because if someone is getting a blood draw, if they're actually getting a little tube of blood drawn and they're going to get other hormones measured, like maybe they'll get their testosterone measured or their thyroid hormone measured, there's nothing more complicated to that. I'm adding insulin to the mix. It's just that people don't care about it. They, it's, not on their, it's not on their mind. And so it's not even, they don't even think about checking that box. But, there's, but it is easily done, as easily as measuring any other hormone. The moment all that blood is going to a lab to get tested for other hormones, there's no added burden, um, really, um, to get insulin as well. It's just, again, the problem is ignorance that because people have so little regard for it, it's not commonly done. And, and that leads to some genuine hurdles for people. Because if, if you're in Canada and you're, you're the, the, you know, the insurance, uh, the, the kind of general care won't measure it, well, then what can you do? You know, you've got to be prepared to pay out of pocket. In the U.S., depending on your insurer, maybe it'll cover it, maybe it won't. And then again, you'd have to be prepared to pay out of pocket for it. And, and, and so that's, that's part of the ignorance that I certainly am hoping to help overcome, that as people have an, a heightened awareness of it, well, then insurance providers will want to pay for the insulin because it will help their, their, their people, their, their clients or whatever, be, be healthier. But there is a box to check off if, if, yes. if someone finds. Okay. All right. Yep. So actionable steps. Very, very important, actionable steps. Um, I just wanted to stop briefly on this because of, of my um, area of interest. Are you seeing with, you know, you're, you're, you've already said that you're seeing increase, increased levels of insulin resistance. Are you also seeing in tandem with that increased levels of pancreatitis, pancreatic cancer, um, all following along those lines? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so not not pancreatic cancer, but pancreatitis. Uh, so pancreatic cancer is sort of its own beast, and it is okay. a vicious one. Pancreatitis 
where the pancreas is, is getting inflamed, that can tend to follow the same trend. In fact, it appears to that happens with hepatitis or the inflammation of the liver. Before the liver gets inflamed, assuming it's not due to an infection, it has been fatty. Uh, and so the same thing appears to happen with the pancreas that you have a fatty pancreas, which precedes the actual inflammation before it's fatty and inflamed, which is pancreatitis or, you know, in the case of the liver, that's like hepatitis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, that does appear to follow. Now, whether it's um, contributing to, in other words, whether it's causal or whether it's just correlation, that is, uh, is not known yet. It's not well known yet. I've also mm. read somewhere that skin tags may be... Um, mm symptomatic of insulin resistance. Oh yeah. Is that yep. true? So the, oh, absolutely true. Okay, yes. So skin, skin is the, the, the window into the metabolic soul. It gives us this insight. And there are two things you mentioned one skin tags, which can happen at skin folds where the skin may be rubbing like around the neck is a common site around the armpits as well. And skin tags are not like a mole. This is like, just so everybody knows, and I know you know this, it's basically like a little stalk or almost like a little mushroom of skin. It's just sticking straight up on, or it's a little kind of bulbous little projection of skin. It's not like a big round hill like a mole is maybe. So that's a skin tag when it's just kind of sticking up like a little stalk or a little mushroom. In the same areas of the body, like the neck or the armpits, someone can have a problem called uh, acanthosis nigricans, which is these large, darker sections in the texture of the skin is altered. Now, these aren't little freckles like I'm cursed with, um, but this is, you know, larger sections of skin where it's a little kind of uh, rough and kind of wrinkled, almost like a tissue paper that's been all kind of crumpled. And that'll occur in those same areas. Again, that's acanthosis nigricans. And both of those problems are very reflective of insulin resistance and indeed improve and go away entirely as insulin resistance improves. That's very interesting. So the the question now is, is how we can take steps to um, better our insulin sensitivity. Uh, I want to leave that to the end because there's, you know, your area of interest is um, metabolism and insulin and metabolism. And I would like for you to, you know, highlight what your research is showing as far as how um, insulin, insulin resistance impacts metabolism. So we have a great diet and it's not getting used as well Mm -hmm. as it could be. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, uh, insulin controls the metabolism of cells. And by extension, the metabolism of the body. Um, And this matters. Uh, For example, if someone eats uh, in a day meals that are increasing their insulin, that can slow their metabolic rate by 300 calories, make 300 calories slower than if someone's eating uh, meals throughout the day that are not spiking their insulin. And so you have this direct control of metabolic rate in the entire body. My, my work has found that some of this effect could be mediated at the fat cells where insulin will slow metabolic rate at the fat cells. And, and when insulin is low, then the metabolic rate of the fat cells can increase by two or three times. So, you know, a pretty, a pretty significant bump um, and, uh, and sort of a large view of this all Um, is reflected in a wonderful study called the Baltimore Longitudinal Study. And this was published uh, 20 or 30 years ago. And what they found in tracking people over 10 years is that they just measured the the total metabolic rate 
And it wasn't a very good predictor of who gained weight or lost weight or stayed the same over these 10 years. However, what was a predictor was which fuel they were burning. And people don't appreciate this, that the, the human metabolism is like a hybrid engine. It has two fuels that it will primarily rely on, blood sugar or, or glucose or fat. So at any moment, we're sugar burning or we're fat burning primarily. And insulin dictates which of those fuels is being used. As I alluded to earlier, when insulin is elevated, the body's in sugar burning mode or glucose burning. When insulin is low, the body's in fat burning mode. And what they found, no surprise, is that the people who were in sugar burning mode tended uh, were the most likely to gain weight and the most likely to gain the most weight. The highest weight gainers were the sugar burners. In contrast, the fat burners were the least likely to gain weight and the most likely to have gained the least amount of weight. Those are two different things, although it sounds like I said the same thing. But in the end, that to me is important where as we're trying to control our insulin levels to help improve or prevent insulin resistance, at the same time, we are directly improving our chances of not gaining weight because low insulin helps our body stay in a fat burning state. And of course, if we're fat burning, it just makes it simpler to keep our fat at bay. Interesting. So two things pop up here in my mind. Um, I just don't want to. Oh, okay. So let's, let's talk about it. Um, fasting then. Obviously, there's a place for fasting in mm-hmm. your dynamic. Oh, 100%. And in fact, I am very pleased to direct any of the audience to look up the work of a man named Jason Fung, F-U-N-G. Mm-hmm. He's a physician in Ontario who's really become the godfather, the leading voice on fasting in the whole world. Yeah, I've tried to get a hold of him. He's a tough man to get a hold of. That's he is. For sure. he's, he's a gem. I consider him a friend. Uh, he's a wonderful guy. Mm-hmm. Yes. So fasting there. Um, are you with with the talk? You know, obviously what's popping up here is keto. Are you um, for this type of a diet or is it still we need a good balance? Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to. I never want to appear as an advocate of a ketogenic diet, but. I will be a staunch defender of it, um, where it has so much misunderstanding. I do not believe that people need to be on a ketogenic diet. So, And it's ketogenic only insofar as you're burning a lot of fat. When insulin is low and you're burning a lot of fat, you start making ketones from all that fat burning. That's why it's just ketogenic. A ketone is just basically a piece of burned fat. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So just to demystify it a little. But yeah, I don't think it's necessary for people to cut their carbs to the point that they're ketogenic, although some people may find it very beneficial if, for example, they are trying to fight Alzheimer's disease or they are trying to improve their migraines. It can absolutely stop migraines and a person may never have another one. Um, it, It is that helpful. So depending on the individual, they may want to do that. But it's, I don't think it's necessary. My view on carbohydrates is that they are the most likely offender, uh-huh. that it's carbohydrates that spike insulin um, the most and keep it up the longest. And so that is the macronutrient in the diet that should be the most scrutinized. But that is not to say that they should be wholly uh, avoided. My view on it is just control your carbohydrates and focus on carbohydrates that do not come from a bag or a box with a barcode. In and other there words, you go. And that's fruits it. and vegetables and mm-hmm. yep, avoid the processed carbs. And then you're, you're really taking a wonderful first step. 
Yeah, the you know, carbs have been demonized, and I'm one of the people that are trying to undemonize it, but we have to be very particular when we're talking about what we mean by carbs. That's and, right. you know, fruits and vegetables, processed foods, they're all lumped into carbs. We do need to be particular. Diet, we've talked about, is there anything else that can really help to improve our insulin levels and insulin sensitivity? Yeah, so diet is the elephant in the room. If someone can control their carbohydrates, focus on the less processed and and replace those processed carbs with more uh, proteins and fats so that you're not hungry and you're actually satisfied, that's the way to do it. And that will control insulin the most powerfully. But in addition to that, I have to say this, and I know it'll make people groan, but but improved sleep habits. And and I will I will give someone a little. Uh, something a little more insightful than just get off your screens, which everyone says, I will say, stop eating. Once you eat dinner, be done. It, I, I believe this is the single most relevant predictor to a good night of sleep. If someone can go to bed on a relatively empty stomach and they haven't stuffed themselves and, and overindulged at, at dinner or let alone into the evening snacking all evening, they will, I guarantee they will sleep so much better. Their, their heart will be beating a little slower and a little softer and their body temperature will be lower, all of which will make sleep so much easier. So just sleep well and by avoiding snacking into the evening, eat dinner as early as you can and then stop. And absolutely. And that goes straight to the process of digestion. And we have to remember yes. that when the body works, it's creating heat, it needs energy. And so when you're pushing up too close to bedtime, you are not allowing your body to repair, you are putting it into the digestive space. Well and uh, it's, 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 a, it's just a metabolic thing. It's not somebody's, this is what my belief is, it is a thing. And yep. very easily researched. What about exercise? Yep. I'm a huge advocate of exercise. My view on exercise is, is simple, but not because I'm simple-minded, but because I appreciate that people- <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> we're all, yeah, yeah. Well, I just appreciate that we're all varied. I wouldn't want someone to think that I've not given this serious thought. My view on exercise is the best one is the one you'll do. So whether it's a gal who's listening and, and her way of exercise is just walking around town with the gals, with her girlfriends, or you know, walking in the mall because it's too cold outside, well, then do it. If I'm talking, if someone listening is a little more capable and sufficiently motivated, well, then by all means, go out and do CrossFit. But to, for me to say, everyone go do CrossFit, well, then that old 65-year-old gal is going to say, well, forget you, Ben, mm -hmm. I'm not going to do that. So really, my view on exercise is it matters. It's very helpful by uh, moving a muscle. It starts pulling in glucose and helps insulin drop very quickly. Uh, and, and so just do something. Whatever mm -hmm. it is you're going to do, that's the one to do. So replace exercise with the word movement, you yeah, know, do yeah, what you can good, do. Good. Yep. So in my hands here, I have your book. It is written for the common man. Why we mm -hmm. get sick. It is extremely well received. Um, where would we find this? Yeah. So uh, anywhere books are sold. Um, okay. Amazon, of course, is the low hanging fruit, but mm -hmm. generally any large booksellers online or retail would have the book. And congratulations. I tell every author Thank that I just you. am totally amazed when people write books. It's such dedication. and oh, It's exhausting. Yeah, I bet <laughs> I'm it still is. still trying to find the motivation to do another one. But so valid for people. So if you want to find out more, if you want to get a deeper dive into this, pick up this book. And if people want to follow you on social media, I don't know if you want to, um, you know, give those tags out for everybody. And, you know, if they oh, want to sure. get a hold yeah. of you. 
Yeah. Here's yeah. Well, <laughs> yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So people, I'm mostly active on Instagram just because that's such a clear, simple medium. Um, and people can find me there at Ben Bickman PhD. And I usually just put together little one or two minute videos about metabolism. It's never me flexing in front of a mirror or showing <laughs> you what I'm doing. You know, none of that whatsoever. No one wants to see that. It's just, uh, just pure little one or two minute lessons about metabolism. Wonderful. I have really enjoyed the show. I thank you so much for taking time out to, uh, really educate us on something. So, you know, really the main part of what we need to be doing here and focusing on diet and, and all the other things that we always talk about, but really elucidating here the, this critical undertow for so many diseases. So I really do appreciate, you know, with you being so busy and, and your notoriety that you've taken time to be with us. So thank you so much, oh, Ben, my, for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Everybody, we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.